Welcome to the China Institute podcast, China Matters. I'm your host Jia Wang. Today, our guest is Ambassador Guy Zhenjiang, former Canadian ambassador to China. We will be discussing Canada-China relations and doing business in China in our conversation. So, welcome, Guy, to the China Institute podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be、uh, back to Edmonton, and but especially to have the chance to see the institute for the first time. It's a beautiful building and a very important center, in my view, to uh, foster uh, relations between Canada and China. Thank you, Guy. We're so thrilled and privileged to have you here with us today. So we will talk a bit about Canada-China relations here. Maybe just to start off,、uh, we've seen a fair bit of. Media attention on Chinese investment in Canada、uh, in the past year, and some have suggested that there are、uh, significant security risks associated with mergers such as the Acon deal or the Norsat deals. So, in your view, how significant are these security risks? Of course, we have to look seriously to、uh, security risks, but I think there's a bit of、uh, paranoia. I'm afraid when it、uh, comes to Chinese investment. In my view, for instance, in the case of Acon, the security risk, if there are any, they are very limited, and and therefore we have to、uh, to distinguish between the types of、uh, investment and have a more systematic and rational、uh, decision making process. The media have a tendency to to play things up, and、uh, I, I think it's unfortunate. Linked to this, of course, is the question of investment by state-owned enterprises. Well, it's clear that、uh, you know when if you have listened to what、uh, President Xi Jinping said that the 19-party Congress、uh, SOEs won't disappear. Quite the contrary, and they are seen as a, a major a part of future success, future economic success of China. So for us. We have to、uh, reconcile ourselves with the fact that investment by SOEs will continue. In all of this, I, I, I like to repeat that in fact we we are in charge of the laws of the regulations, and it's for us,、uh, for the、uh, the government,、uh, either at the federal or provincial level, depending on their、uh, jurisdiction, to apply、uh, the laws. And I think that、uh, most Chinese investors. Will want to to comply with、uh, these rules. When I was ambassador and I dis I was promoting Chinese investment in Canada, I had I think a good message, and and the Chinese、uh, fully agreed with this. They like Canada because of it's a, a country with a stable、uh, political system, a rule of law, the best financial system in the world. Uh, it's a welcoming multicultural society and a clean environment, and、uh, you know we have a good public health、uh, system. So all these are great advantages. Plus, a low dollar compared to the American dollar.、Uh, until recently, until the、uh, recent changes、uh, announced by President、uh, Trump in terms of corporate taxes, Canada was one of the lowest uh, taxes uh, system in the、uh, among the G7. But so for all those reasons, I think that Chinese interests will continue. But I think for us, we have to be a bit、uh, more smart about how we go about uh, uh, national security question and just have a hard look, a good, systematic,、uh, rational approach to uh, uh, these questions.、Mm-hmm. Do you think should Canada consider、uh, lessening the restrictions on、uh, Chinese SOE investment, especially in the energy sector? Well, I would I would say I would say so because.、Uh, If I look back to、uh, 
uh, December 2012, when the previous government of Mr. Harper uh, made the decision to approve the purchase of Nexon by CNUC and uh, put restrictions on uh, further SO investment in the oil sands. Well, in fact, you know, we all know that uh, the oil sands are very complicated to develop. In fact, we will always need investment, and I don't see the risk. And let's remember that we, we used to have our own state-owned enterprise. We still have uh, state-owned enterprises in most provinces, uh, and therefore uh, we, ha- we have to be a bit rational. Of course, if we engage into free trade negotiations with China, you can bet that uh, this question will come up. And uh, as it came up uh, with Australia when China negotiated its investments, so I think there will be, I'm pretty sure, that the Chinese will want to discuss, uh, to review the threshold where uh, investment are subject to review. And for us, it will be for our ne- negotiators to see uh, how they are going to manage this, what they can extract in exchange. Indeed. So, um, of course, you left China in October 2016, um, and you have been, of course, constantly observing what's uh, going on there as well. So, in your view, has the uh, business environment in China, uh, generally speaking, improved or pretty much the same, or is getting more difficult for foreign business to do business there? Well, I would say that it remains uh, a complicated market, and I would like to give two examples of this. First, uh, as you know, the federal government conducted consultations uh, in preparation for the, la- the eventual launch of free trade negotiations. This took place last year over the course of the, of the summer. And what came out of that is uh, a picture that uh, is pretty good on the, the challenges that uh, remain to do business. There are many sectors of the Chinese economy that uh, remain close to foreign investment. Uh, And by comparison, it's a lot easier for Chinese companies to do business in Canada. The other measure that I always look at uh, reports prepared by the like of the American Chamber of Commerce in China or the CCBC. And the latest survey done by the American Chamber of Commerce, there was an increase in the number of companies that said that they felt less welcome in China. And I think it's something that the Chinese government has to watch. This being said, if you have listened again to uh, what President Xi Jinping said uh, at the 19th Party Congress, he said that China would continue to open its market. They are clearly in favor of trade liberalization. Right after the Congress, in fact, they announced new rules uh, that will apply to the financial sector where they will further open the financial sector, which should benefit Canadian companies because our companies, our banks, and our insurance companies are very well placed. Uh, and can offer very good products to a growing middle class uh, of uh, Chinese citizens. But clearly, there's still uh, a long way to go. And and it's true that China has been talking a good talk for many years uh, about uh, welcoming foreign investment and foreign technology. But, of course, there are also some new challenges as, uh, you know, requests that companies agree to transfer their technology which for many companies would mean that, in fact, they would be out of business in China uh, in a few years from now. So do you want to get into a suicide mission where you will make money for a few years, but then you are kicked out? And so China will have to understand that in a process like this, you have to have give and take. And really, when they talk of a win-win, it has to be a win for both sides and not two wins for them. In terms of uh, technology transfers, there are also a lot of reports saying China now uh, is leading the world in terms of uh, patent uh, applications and 
also putting a lot of resources uh, from the national level to provincial to city level uh, in innovation and uh, trying to transform the economy uh, from more of a mass production of cheap goods to something led by innovation and sophisticated and high-end uh, manufacturing. So do you see China would also maybe do more to perhaps help protect its own uh, intellectual property and then maybe uh, becoming more compliance with international standards? Uh, well, entirely. And in fact, I feel uh, quite encouraged by uh, recent developments in China because if you look at the situation as it was a few years ago, and again, if you look at the latest survey by the American Chamber of Commerce, IP does not figure among the 10 top concerns of uh, American companies. And you're right, in fact, the main reason for this is innovation by Chinese entrepreneurs, Chinese researchers, who have forced the government to apply the rules that were there, but that were not being applied. Furthermore, China has created a special tribunal to handle uh, IP uh, problems. So I think it's, it's moving in the, in the right direction. And of course, this is key for the, the Chinese government, because with, if you look at the Made in China strategy uh, 2025, they want to become a major export of technology in 10 key sectors. They want to rely less on uh, foreign uh, companies. I think that they are still not getting the results for all the money that they have invested. It may be linked to the education system, which does not foster creativity. But when you look at the number of Chinese students who go abroad to study, I think they are bringing back with those, uh, they are coming back with those uh, skills. And so there are opportunities for us uh, there because uh, when you look at their priorities where they, they want to, uh, uh, there's this notion that came out at the 19th Party Congress of sustainability. And for that, you need efficient growth, quality growth. You need to focus more on environmental problems, and I think that Canada is well-placed in terms of renewable technology, clean technology to help out. And so all this to say that IP is moving in the right direction. This being said, for Canadian companies also, they have to do their homework. And when I talk with companies and I say, have you registered your trademarks? Have you registered your patents? And in many cases, they have not done so. I said, well, then, of course, you are creating problems for yourself down the road because you know, somebody else may uh, register your trademark and uh, you will be faced with difficulties. So I think it's a question of uh, taking all the measures that are necessary uh, for you to, to protect your IP. Very much. Um, so you have previously served as the chief negotiator and uh, ambassador for climate change for uh, the government of Canada. So would you mind share some insight regarding China's current position on climate change, climate governance, and, and how and, and also why this position has evolved over the years? Well, uh, I must say that the, during the, the years I was the chief negotiator, uh, I had many meetings with my, my Chinese counterpart, uh, and China plays a very important role in the uh, international negotiation on climate change. It chairs the G77 group, and of course China still portrays itself as a developing country, and they are very influential. I could see uh, that during the negotiations, uh, forcing some decisions that, in my view, were not to the benefit of uh, developing countries, especially African countries. But, you know, uh, China would uh, use various means to force them to abide by the consensus among the group. This being said, there was a major turnaround in China, I would put it in 2013. Up to that point, 
the Chinese government uh, was telling the, the people that there was no serious air pollution problem in China. But, you know, with uh, so many Chinese having their smartphones and going to the American embassy website to see the hourly reading of air pollution and also going on the Internet to know about the impact of uh, air pollution on health, especially when you only have one child and you want your child to be in good health, you know, in the, in the Chinese culture, uh, a child is supposed to take care of his parents in their old age. So there, are, there were all kinds of incentives. And, and at some point, the genie was out of the bottle. And I recall uh, Premier Li Keqiang talking about this. And China made a 180 degrees turnaround and started to invest really uh, a lot to, uh, to clean up the environment. Uh, in fact, I was in Beijing a few weeks ago. The air was blue. People at the embassy told me that, in fact, it has been the best winter in many years. Maybe the, the government has been lucky because it has been quite windy, so that means that the pollution moves, uh, moves away. But also they have shut down many companies, especially those uh, coal-fired plants that uh, they, they use to either generate electricity or uh, to eat uh, water. But if I, I, I look, in fact, uh, China will be a, uh, able to meet its targets uh, under the uh, Paris Agreement ahead of time, and, and it's not too difficult for them because they use so much coal. The challenge for them, and we, uh, we saw this last year in the northeast of China, is to get enough natural gas to replace uh, coal. And there was a shortage of natural gas, and it was cold in the northeast, so they had to crank up production by uh, coal fire plants. And so I think now they are a force. They are taking advantage of the fact also that uh, the U.S. has retrenched. And, and so if I look to Canada-China relations, I, I was very glad that during the, the last visit of uh, Mr. Trudeau to uh, Beijing in December of last year, there was a couple of new groups that were created where we will have annual dialogue on climate change and clean energy. And that will help China to move ahead, and we will be able to, to help them because, I, again, Canada has, has good experience. So it's moving in the right direction. The international negotiations will remain difficult. Uh, in my view, the present negotiating system, which is based on consensus, make it very difficult to move ahead and uh, it will be, in my view, impossible to limit uh, warming to uh, 2 degrees centigrade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, indeed a serious issue. And you just mentioned the, uh, uh, the last uh, trip uh, Prime Minister Trudeau made to Beijing in December. Uh, so many were surprised that trip didn't result in the formal announcement of uh, bilateral free trade agreement uh, negotiation. So in your view, what are the most significant barriers to starting a negotiation uh, with China on an FTA issue? Well, in a way, it's uh, unfortunate that the announcement was not made because uh, it was expected to be the main announcement. I think probably what happened, unfortunately, is uh, miscommunications. And there were signals that the, the Chinese government sent that we didn't picked up early enough. And if you look at the process, we had four rounds of exploratory talks over the, the last year. These have helped to gauge the level of ambition uh, on, on both sides to see whether there would be red line sectors that would be difficult. And uh, this uh, 
I think we got to the stage where basically there is agreement on both sides to launch uh, negotiations. Again, you know, we all know that the economies are complementary. Uh, in fact, in 2012, there was the, a study that was released, a complementary uh, study that confirmed that, uh, you know, there could be uh, major growth uh, if we uh, were to get into an FTA. So the challenge, uh, basically, I think my understanding is that it was on how do we announce the launch of negotiations. And there were a, a key few issues on the Chinese side that created some, uh, some problems. One, especially, how could we refer to labor rights uh, in the announcement? And on this, I can understand that uh, people on the Canadian side were a bit taken by surprise in as much as the Chinese side had agreed to the four conditions that Prime Minister Trudeau had set out back when he visited China. He had meetings with uh, Premier Li and President Xi at the end of August, I think it was on August 31st, 2016, where he told uh, Premier Li, we will agree to launch exploratory talks only if you agree to discuss four things, environment, labor rights, the role of state-owned enterprises, and public procurement. Initially, China said no. So w there was no announcement of the launch of those talks when the PM was there. Then we used the three weeks between the two visits to further negotiate. And by the time Premier Li came to Ottawa in September 2016, the Chinese had agreed to discuss these issues. So since they had agreed to discuss labor rights, why would they not agree now to have a specific reference in the communique that would uh, announce the, the launch of the negotiations? Well, in the meantime, there have been developments in China. Again, I would point out to the 19-party Congress, and China now is a major power. And for us, we have to understand that we are the junior partner in these negotiations. So it is for diplomat to find language. And I think, you know, you can be creative with language. I have offered some views to, to interested people so that we can say that, yes, uh, there will be a discussion on the issues uh, that are of interest to Canada, that are part of our values, and of course, the negotiations will unfold over a period of time and we'll have the chance to discuss these issues further. And I can tell you that uh, I had discussion with people last week and there are active uh, discussions right now to see uh, how we can try to uh, make this happen. So do you remain hopeful that perhaps the former negotiations will still start? Well, I remain hopeful, and in my view, we have to launch the negotiations this year as soon as possible, because if we wait to next year, I'm afraid that it would become an electoral issue because there will be uh, elections at the federal level next year. And so to avoid that, uh, but also basically it's because when you look at the present uh, environment, again, it's a, a lot more difficult for Canadian companies to do business in China than the, the reverse. And a free trade agreement could give us the opportunity to address those issues and help to open new markets for our companies, taking into account that you know China is welcome to grow and there's a large uh, middle-class component that we can benefit from that. But I think the FDA would help us, hopefully, to have more of a level playing field. A big goal should be to open public procurement to Canadian companies. Of course, reduce tariffs so that we are, um, our companies are as competitive as those of Australia or New Zealand. Agri-food is a big sector that will expand. 
But I think also in terms of the services, uh, financial services, all this, we could benefit a lot also. So hopefully it will be launched in the, uh, the near future. There seems to be also a sense of urgency. Of course, China already signed a free trade agreement with Australia, and before that, New Zealand, and more recently, South Korea. And China also spoke about uh, start maybe a negotiation with England and some other uh, countries in the European Union. So you know, there are a lot of countries are contemplating this idea of uh, reaching some free trade deal with China. Is it going to be putting Canada at a disadvantage if we don't? get our acts together. Well, uh, you're right. We cannot be uh, complacent. Uh, on one end, I, uh, I have always said that we can be a lot more ambitious than uh, the Australians or the New uh, Zealander. The New Zealand, its FTA is pretty narrow. Uh, Switzerland, it's also pretty narrow. Iceland, the same thing. We would want, I think the model would be the Australian, but basically expand it. And Canada has a lot more to offer than Australia. Canada is a G7 country. Assuming that the NAFTA agreement remains in place, it means access to the North American market. Also, because we have CETA, it means access to the European market. And we would have the first mover advantage. And Canada is very well perceived in China. So I think there are advantages for us. But again, it's in our own interest to help our companies to do better in China, to launch those negotiations. And of course, there will always be areas where we will have challenges with China. You know, the, the human rights situation is not good. Uh, freedom of expression is restricted. But I think we can develop a relationship where we have a number of areas where we work well together and the others where now we have the venues to be able to discuss some of those uh, sensitive issues. One of the results of these uh, high-level visits that took place in 2016 and again last year is that we have in place the formal mechanism that will ensure annual dialogues at the level of the Prime Minister, Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, Minister Morneau is chairing another one on uh, strategic economic uh, and trade issues. We have now also this formal dialogue on the environment and climate change, on clean growth, on national security and rule of law. So all those mechanisms that we didn't have in the past put us in uh, good stead in, in comparison with our G7 competitors. So we have the mechanisms where we will be able to raise issues, and this can be done in a way that is uh, respectful, but at the same time help China to move, we, you know, we, we don't want to, uh, to change China. China is a big country. They are leaders in many areas, but it's just a question of trying to improve things and uh, get them to adhere to their constitution and their laws when it comes to uh, human rights. Indeed. And to perhaps more effectively engage with China, in Canada, we, we may need more China knowledge or China awareness or China expertise. Do you see the government is doing a, a good job promoting or growing this type of expertise? Unfortunately, we are not doing a very good job. If I look at education, and you know, we have to start uh, with uh, young people. Uh, now we have probably, and the figure varied, the, the figure that I use publicly, I think, is that there are 146,000 Chinese students in Canada. In fact, I read in, on the way here uh, yesterday in the Globe and Mail, there was an article saying that there might be 186,000. But in any case, it's significant. On the other hand, we only have 4,000 Canadians studying in China, many doing uh, English programs. And so 
uh, my message to university uh, presidents and, and rectors and, and so on when I was ambassador is, what are you doing to further develop uh, those uh, competencies? There was a good report that was uh, put out about two years ago uh, on Asian competencies by the Asia Pacific Foundation, really outlining what should be done. I think it's for government to do more. I think the government of Alberta is doing probably better than others because when I look around in terms of Mandarin classes, there are more here than in other places. But again, you know, China will be so important in the future. It will be the probably the number one uh, global power in 20, 30 years from now. We really have to build our expertise and I see this also in Ottawa when I look at the competencies in the federal government, you know, we still have a long way to go uh, in terms of education and understanding. And in my view, we have no choice but to do that. Thank you so much, Ambassador uh, Sanjak, for sharing your insight with us today. It was a great pleasure and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>